The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight we are continuing in the series of satsangs consecrated to the great yogic text known as the Geranda Samhita. We are in the chapter number five. It's the last of the big chapters. There are just two more chapters after this of 20 shlokas each. So two very short chapters. Um, the fifth chapter in which we already entered last time is a chapter which Geranda has consecrated to Pranayama. He has done Pratyahara before Pranayama and now he does pranayama, obviously from his attitude and from his writing, uh, uh, Geranda considers pranayama a very powerful part of yoga, so he starts the chapter with lots of precautions, which he did not mention in starting kriyas and purification, he did not mention those in the practice of asanas, he didn't even mention those when it came to the mudras, which are powerful practices involving kundalini. But when he came to the chapter about pranayama, the first 30 shlokas that we analyzed in the previous session, they were already consecrated to time, place, diet. He exerts a lot of caution when, as soon as he deals with pranayama, he says, wait a second, time matters here, the location matters, the diet matters. Does it matter for asanas or for mudras? Yes, it does matter for asanas and for mudras, especially when the mudras are done in the agama style as a kundalini yoga practice, then the mudras matter as much, I'm sorry, than diet and the others they matter as much as they matter for pranayama. But somehow in the system of Geranda, <coughs> with the mudras, he was more relaxed. And when he gets to pranayama, he unleashes the dogs and he simply says, here, you have to be really careful because this one is going really deep and strong. <coughs> he has spent 30 shlokas until this moment, because we closed with the shloka number 30 from the chapter number 5 last time, he, he, he simply used 30 shlokas to describe what is the best time for starting the yoga practice, uh, some of the location issues, which is the ideal location for practicing yoga, and also he is uh, very clear about diet. When you read all those, you realize that this yogi, Geranda, he had a lot of system. It's very admirable, even if you cannot follow all those Indian plants to the millimeter, and you will adapt it to your European culture or North American culture or culture from other parts of the world. It's very important to get the spirit. He writes in a certain spirit, and you see that he wants people to eat things which are not very toxic, not very heavy, not very um, 
dangerous in some way or another or impure, he is always going for sattvic food, for clean food, for pure food, for simple items of food. And uh, that is beautiful to see. It's beautiful to see what style of life these yogis had even 200 years ago or more. As some of you may remember, this text, according to scholars, is written approximately 210, 220 years ago. So quite late in the medieval period still of Indian development. And so in the shloka number 30, he was saying the yogis should also not eat hard food, hard to digest, this and that, so that the system has an has a easy life and you are not subjecting your system to extremes of many kinds. And uh, before he starts, actually there are three more shlokas which show that all these rules, they apply not only to time, place, and diet, but they apply to a few other things which are going to be listed quickly and which make you understand very clearly. Uh, Geranda is speaking about a certain lifestyle. There are people who always aspire to have a wild lifestyle. Geranda is definitely not that person. There are people who say, I would not be able to be an accountant in a company getting bold and making columns of numbers for 40 years until my retirement. It's like that job would kill me because it's too monotonous. Geranda recommends a monotonous lifestyle. If you want to bungee jump, you're not really the man of Geranda. Geranda recommends a steady, quiet lifestyle in which you know that you go to Nirvana. You are a seeker of enlightenment and exactly like the Buddhist monks or the Christian monks and nuns or the ashramites from India and so on, you can put up with this blandness. You are not getting bored. You are not in search of adventure. You can focus on your training and you can do that for the next 30 years. In a certain way, at least the type of yoga which Geranda is preaching is for people who are a little bit earthy, calm, the melancholic temperament, not the choleric or wild types of temperament that do something for six months and then they get bored and they need new excitement because otherwise they feel they are going to die as a certain temperament. And of course, that's not entirely true because there are ways in spirituality for the people who are wild, but then they have to find a way to consecrate their wildness into something which is at the same time moderate and under control. So therefore, there are ways. You know, if you are very fiery, how could you express your fieriness in yoga? What is fiery in yoga? No, maybe if you do 108 sun salutations per day, you will consume your fieriness. Nobody in your ashram or in your school does 108 sun salutations per day, but because you've got chili up your ass, that's your way of manifesting your chili. Not by running away from yoga and getting bored 
and doing stupid things, but just by pushing the limits of your yoga practice to some higher stakes, like simply doing wild things in yoga. You take over Suri's challenge and you want to see if you can do five minutes of Mayurasana. That's where your fire goes. You pick up the gauntlet and you simply go into something wild, but inside the practice. You do a lot of tapas. You do other and other things which satisfy your need for fieriness. All in all, Geranda describes a very quiet lifestyle. And he even says, therefore, in the shloka number 31, one must also avoid extreme ascetic practices such as early morning cold baths, long-term fasting, eating only once a day, and others, if they may damage the body. That is because India is full of people that have a great spiritual aspiration and they are ready to do whatever crazy thing, but they are not initiated in yoga. Even the great Ramakrishna, until he met with Bhairavi Brahmani, who showed him some yoga and some tantric practices, Ramakrishna did not have a proper practice. The practice of Ramakrishna for more than 10 years was to worship Kali, to do pujas, worship ceremonies for Kali, which is, with all due respect for Ramakrishna, it is in a certain way a rock-bottom practice, like the Indian grand masters in Kashmiri Shaivas, they have put this ritual, Vedic ritual and so on, at the bottom of the ladder. Let's say, they say, when you can't do anything else, do some pujas, do some ritual, you know, because that's at least something that you do more than nothing. But if you can stand on your head and you have been properly initiated in the headstand, and you are not going to break your neck or damage your brain by doing the headstand recklessly and foolishly. So if you have been taught in the headstand properly, one hour of headstand per day will give you way more than one hour of a ritual per day. Way more. Thus, there are forms of yoga practice which are more concentrated time-wise, more intense per minute, than others. And that's why um, here India is full of people who would say a way to get some spirituality going is to wake up at four o'clock in the morning and go at the Ganges, which is cold, even in Rishikesh, which is like 300 kilometers away from its springs. So it's already a big river in Rishikesh. And even there, it is cold, even in the summertime, in June, when it's hottest in the area, the Ganges is still pretty cold because it's a mountain river. And there are yogis, or there were yogis in Rishikesh. Even Swami Shivananda was an adept of this. You wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning and you go and stand in the Ganges up to here. Why? There are a multitude of reasons. When you wake up at 5 o'clock and you go in the Ganges, your dick becomes as big as this, or as small as this, and you are not going to have a morning erection, so you are not going to have lewd thoughts of lust or anything, and so on. When you take a bath like this, it makes you more rajasic, it amplifies your fire,
because if you don't get some fire, you are going to get a pneumonia and die. So it's a sort of a natural kicking reflex of the body, like stand up to the challenge or die, fight or flight, you know. So either get out of the body in a heart attack or struggle back to stay alive. So it summons up the vital forces of the body. So it is a practice. It's still being practiced. And others, fasting, uh, eat uh, only once a day, or others and others. No, there are uh, many such practices. Gyaranda is not for it. Gyaranda says these are practices done by the people who don't know yoga. A yogi says, if I do one hour of pranayama or one hour of headstand, I am going to get closer to God and to myself. A, a baba, a sadhu who does not know yoga, he says, if I go in the Ganges naked at five o'clock in the morning, I'm going to gain some merit through the tapas, through the pain, through the willpower which is involved, through the self-discipline that I have to go, and with this I'm going to get closer to God. Everybody is trying to go closer to God, but there's a difference between people who know a clear technology, such as activating their crown chakras, and people who don't know about the crown chakra and don't know how to activate it, because you in Agama take it for granted that it's so simple and straightforward that probably everybody knows about this. You are dreaming. This is a very, very rare and focused, sharp technology, and you take it for granted. But most people have heard some vague thing about it or nothing, and therefore they don't have a clue as to the fact that you have to increase the energy in your crown chakra and where exactly is that placed and body positions or things which can be used with a view to that and so on. There are many people who take this for granted and once they hear it in Agama, it's clear for them. Then they go to a Vipassana retreat, they go to a Kriya Yoga gathering, they go to this and they know immediately this guy is talking about Sahasrara or Ajna or this or that and the teacher never says it and the other people have not done Agama, they don't have a clue technically about what it is, but people who did Agama, they imagine it's a, it's a walk in the park because they already heard the technical data from Agama. It's a big difference. Many people don't put exact value in what they learn in the Agama system because they take all this technology like, oh, but you can find it in books. Yes, but in the books it's confused, mixed up, not systematic. The wrong error is given in between the lines here and there. So with the books you can't really do anything unless they are a practical step-by-step -step system. That's why uh, Geranda is knowledgeable. He says in India many people do many efforts. They say if you eat once a day you are going to become more spiritual. Is that true? Perhaps but compared with a headstand or with a pranayama, it's a very, very slow and roundabout way. Additional to your headstand, you can do some of those, but it's not to be your main practice. And that's why Geranda says, also, besides a proper time, a proper place, a proper diet, he calls the attention like people who do pranayama, mudras, other things, they, they don't need to do other extreme practices that may damage the body. 
you want to do some mudras and some pranayamas, you are doing some of these cold baths or extremely long fastings, and then your mudras might give you a heart attack and kill you. So you can't do them at the same time with some crazy practices. As you can see, uh, Geranda preaches moderation. He says, be moderate in lifestyle, time, space, how, what, how your house should be, diet. And he also says, also, one should avoid extreme ascetic practices and many others if they may damage the body. And he gives a, an Ayurvedic little sentence in the end. In the same shloka, he says, yet one must not eat again within three hours because he said one one should not just eating once a day or after sunset or whatever it is so he shuns extreme practices but he says also on the other side going on the other extreme now if i told you you should not eat just once a day doesn't mean you should eat seven times per day and he takes an ayurvedic statement saying yet one must not eat again within three hours Ayurvedic medicine says that exception made of some extremely light meals which get digested in one to two hours, the average food that a human being eats takes up till three hours to be digested. After three hours, things become a bit nasty. If the digestion goes beyond three and four hours, then the yogis say that some pollution, some intoxication will take place because the food stays too much in the stomach and part of it will alter and deteriorate but up till three hours it's legitimate in ayurveda and that's why ayurveda says never eat again within three hours from a meal little snacks between meals are considered a tragedy by ayurveda because you mix fresh food with half digested food and your body goes into confusion it thinks it has to start the digestion process all over because if not, the new food will not be able to be digested properly. And this produces an excess of kapha dosha. This is how people get kapha too much by eating between meals. So, you know, if he says don't eat just once a day or after sunset or that, then he realizes that some people will say, oh, Geranda said don't do anything. But then he says also, don't go to the other extreme where you may eat more than once every three hours. That was in terms of simple yogic diet. We sometimes realize that modern people eating restaurant food or food which is way more sophisticated than what was like, you know, the yogis would not eat a dressing made with olive oil because there was no olive oil in India until recent times. And therefore, many, many things are new in yoga and for you who do it in Thailand or in France or wherever you do it. And because of that, all these things have to be taken with a pinch of salt. Today, eating food which is way more sophisticated than what yogis did 200 years ago, of course, you can extend this even up to four hours, as some yoga texts say. Like, do not make sure that the food is out of your stomach and then leave a half an hour break for your stomach to rest and to regenerate and to change a layer of cells on the inner lining of the stomach. And then it's time to think about the new cycle of eating whenever it is. So funnily enough, very brief and dry, after he criticized the mostly ascetic thing, he says, yet one must not eat again within three hours. 
with this, he quotes a very important statement from Ayurveda. Some yogis, even some famous yogis, uh, Swami Shivananda, who definitely is one of my heroes, and Direnda Brahmachari, from whom I even learned some yogic technology directly, uh, they were both of them, they fell into this uh, kapha trip of the modern India, where everybody has rather to be slightly fattier than average to have kapha and to live longer and to be more calm and settled. And uh, because of this, they, were, they are giving always some funny advices. Before you do a headstand, before you do some pranayama, before you do some nauli or some udhyana banda, take a little bit of buttermilk, take a little bit of curd, drink a little bit of milk with sweet uh, sticky rice with milk or something. It's like all sorts of kapha, sweetish, fatty, nourishing things uh, where apparently they lost their compass. Even great yogis, if they would have read Gyaranda, they would have said, you know, don't eat within these three hours or something like this. I could insist, it's a minor thing, but I don't want to insist on minor things. You got the point. If ever you'll have questions, read Garanda Samhita more or ask me questions in the Q&A sessions if you need some further elucidation on one of these subjects. 32, having regulated his life in this way, so oof, now he reached 31 shlokas just to tell us how to live your life to be eligible for pranayama. Like if live a moderate, measured life, having regulated his life in this way, let one practice pranayama. In the beginning, he may take a little milk and ghee daily and take his food twice a day, at noon and in the evening. So he is not the adept of practicing, of eating in the morning. Gyaranda is not a breakfast type of man. He says in the morning you may take a little bit of milk and ghee just for greasing the system. They have this belief that you put some kapha in the system and when you do mudras, pranayamas, udhyana, bandhas and so on, these are burning the ghee and the milk, so you need some grease in your system and they like the grease coming from the cows, ghee, milk and so on. It's funny that the yogis of India never seem to have any problem with milk, ghee or buttermilk or things like that, but in modern nutrition, people are veering very much away from this, and there are people who are rabidly speaking against milk and butter and all dairy products, like they are so bad. One of my, one of the yogis who was uh, a pupil of, of the same guru in India, in Rishikesh, he was a 67-year-old man, and somebody came and said, yeah, but as people grow older, already when they are 35 or 40, they cannot digest the casein from milk. Milk is for babies. So this guy shrugged his shoulders and said, I'm 67. I might be just a big baby because I'm drinking one liter of milk every day, and I feel nourished by it and very well. So it's a matter of Anahata Chakra. It's a matter of allergies. It's a matter of other things. I've commented these things. Again, I'm not going to go into this small thing. So actually here for pranayama, he says measured lifestyle. He says a little bit of milk and ghee daily are okay. They recommend, Direnda Brahmachari recommended the same thing. If you want to do more than 30 minutes of headstand per day, he said you have to drink milk, take some ghee, 
because the headstand is burning your tissues inside so much that if you don't drink some milk and ghee or something comparable, which has a comparable amount of kapha and of greasy, heavy stuff, proteinic, oily stuff, then if you don't drink that, your body might simply get too dry. You might get too much manipura, too much sublimation, too much inner fire, and then you might uh, damage your body. So he says, okay, in the beginning, you can have a little bit of milk and ghee. Take food twice a day at noon and in the evening. So he is the adept of two meals per day, the morning reserved to yoga practice. <clears throat> exactly as many of our teachers try to implement here in Agama. Keep the morning for yourself and it's consecrated to yoga practice. And then uh, you have started the day well. You have started the day with what matters. 33. He should sit on a layer of kusha grass or on an antelope skin, tiger skin, a blanket, or even directly on the ground facing east or north. Having purified the nadis, he can then start pranayama. A little bit about it. Kusha grass is a form of grass I can't even tell you exactly. It's just a brand of grass, very popular in India. It grows almost everywhere in India. And the yogis found out that that grass is not rotting, it's not producing bugs into it. So it has become very famous. It's been agreeated. I don't know, maybe if you do this in Europe, maybe you should take a bunch of alfalfa or something, you know. Maybe uh, other forms of greens are equally fit, but they don't have them in India or for them the kusha grass. Many people in India tend to believe like kusha grass is having some juju in it. It's a magic thing and it's not, not as far as I could see. You should not entertain superstitions that doing, uh, there are yogis who say, oh, if you do yoga on a tiger skin, uh, then you are going to get the strength of a tiger. Part of this, in my humble opinion, is a superstition and a very primitive way of talking. Not to mention that today the tigers are an endangered species which is about to be extinct. And if all of you would try to get a tiger skin, you would contribute to an ecological disaster or something, you know. So, and even that, you know, you are vegetarian, but you buy antelope skin from somebody to do your yoga on it. That's why there are many weird things. The yogis, uh, many of these yogis were simple people, sometimes men with... Uh, a lot of manliness and sometimes celibate. So they manifested their manliness as a little bit of machoism, braggadocio, macho things and so on. Like, ah, I'm doing yoga and I'm doing it on a tiger skin, you know. That's exactly like some Western rich people who drive a Ferrari or a Porsche. This was the, the Porsche of the yogis was their tiger skin or something like this. There is interpret it and understand that a lot of things are just... Uh, a matter of local ethnic customs and so on. And um, you know, even my Indian guru, he had his tiger skin and showed it to me proudly that he had a tiger skin. Until now, I didn't own a tiger skin and I don't think my yoga practice suffered from that in any way. So, you know, take it with a pinch of salt. Basically, he says, Geranda in the 18th century, he says, Sit on kusha grass, on antelope skin, tiger skin, a blanket, or even directly on the ground if you are not having pain and you feel comfortable, facing east or north. 
This is mentioned at least two times or three times in Geranda Samhita, and it shows to you that this thing which we wrote in the Agama papers, it's not invented by Agama, and it's not a superficial thing. Geranda doesn't, doesn't bother to explain why modern parapsychologists, modern spiritualists, they try to say probably when you face north, you align yourself with some energy field of the earth, like the magnetic field. And when you face east, there is also some other or the same thing, and then you are getting on the good side of those, while if you'd be facing south or west, how much will that matter? Like, can somebody imagine somebody doing yoga for 12 years and not having a compass and not really facing north but south or something, and uh, the gods uh, are going to punish you by ruining your yoga practice and not giving you the, the benefit and the evolution which comes from the yoga practice just because you are stupid enough to do it facing south or the wrong direction? It's hard to believe at a higher level. So therefore, I'm bound to say, okay, maybe this thing with northeast, maybe it has some 10% importance. But if you want to help yourself with those 10%, instead of shooting yourself in the foot with 10%, then why not? Why not listen to every good piece of advice there is? Here it is from Geranda, and I heard it from other yogic texts and other traditions. He says, best for the yoga practice is facing east, or north. These are the preferred directions of the yogis. So, sitting on whatever seat you sit, facing east or north, having purified the nadis, he can then start pranayama. If you would remember exactly what he said in the first shlokas, he said pranayama depends on time, place, diet, lifestyle, purification of nadis, so he actually forgot to mention, he didn't forget, but he keeps this one separately because this one is a special thing. So actually he didn't finish with the preliminaries. He said he can practice pranayama, let him sit on a tiger skin or whatever, and having purified the facing east, and having purified the nadis, he can then start pranayama. Wait a second. He didn't say what is the purification of the nadis. He said about time, place, diet. And even now in the shlokas number 31 and 2, he spoke a little bit about the lifestyle, like don't do extreme things, don't push yourself into extreme things, live a lifestyle which is moderate in some way. <clears throat> Still, this point called, the fifth point called purification of nadis, he, well, he did not clarify it, so he just mentions it now like do that and then only comes pranayama. And Chandakapali, his disciple, who is very careful and follows very carefully what his teacher says, sanctions him immediately. Like he says, wait, 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 wait. You are taking it too easy here. So Chandakapali, in the shloka number 34, he says, ocean of compassion to his guru. That's a tradition in India and Tibet because the guru giving you the path to enlightenment is equivalent with a very compassionate being because others don't know or don't want to give you those indications. And the guru is the one who is willing to open that door for you. So he says, ocean of compassion. I would like to know how are the nadis purified and what does purification of nadis mean? Please teach me this. So he realized there is one more step to, to actual pranayama. 
And Geranda says, and this is something which you learn in Agama, you take it for granted. But again, that's a teaching specifically yogic. And lo, that Agama didn't invent this one either. This is coming from the solid yoga tradition. Says Geranda, the wind, which he calls by the Sanskrit word Marut, these are the gods of the wind, the spirits of the wind. So he uses a word which doesn't mean the wind like a physical thing. He uses an ambiguous word by which you say the gods of the wind, the spirit of the wind. And that means both the prana and the astral component of prana, like things which are addressing spirit, energy, as well as the physical air. So it's a, they like to use this ambiguous word. As we in Agama sometimes use and say feel very fine vibrations in the area of the neck. And people say, Swami, why don't you simplify? Because in English, this sounds a bit stupid. Why don't you say, feel very fine vibrations in the neck? Because I don't want to say in the neck. I say in the area of the neck, which means inside the neck and outside the neck, around the neck a few centimeters. And that's why I on purpose use a syntax, an expression which is ambiguous, because the prana and the energy is not limited to your skin. It moves in your aura. And when I say in the area of the neck, I demolish the skin as a wall which separates the inside from the outside. It's more fuzzy. And on purpose, I want to use a fuzzy language. That's borrowed from the yogis as well. The yogis use this twilight language, language with double entendre, language which can be interpreted this way and that way. So the wind, Marut, the spirits of the wind, which means it's equally valid physically, etherically, astrally, the wind cannot enter the nadis, the channels, as long as they are clogged by impurities. That's essential. You learn that in day two of Agama. How can then pranayama be accomplished? Like, how can you prana yama? How can you control the prana when the prana cannot even move freely through the channels because they are clogged? So to do pranayama, first you must have access to prana. So prana must move a little bit through your body. And then he goes further. How can one reach knowledge of the truth? Like, you know, if you don't do pranayama, then how are you going to develop spiritually to bigger levels? Therefore, first the nadis must be purified, and only then begin the practice of pranayama. Garanda makes it so very clear. 36. There are two ways of purifying the nadis. Samanu and nirmanu. In my text, when this one will be published in letter form, I even divided this word, sa Manu, nir, manu. Sa means with and nir means without. Like sa vikalpa samadhi, samadhi with vikalpas, with mind. And nir vikalpa samadhi, samadhi without a mind. <coughs> Here it's closed because manu comes from mano, mayakosha, from manas. And it represents manas. So he says purification with the mind or without having to use the mind. Sa manu involves mental activity and the use of bija mantras. So people say, Swami, how can I purify my channels? If you want to use the mental part, 
it's mental concentration, circulation of energy, concentration, visualization, whatever you do, and the use of mantras. So remember implicitly that Gyaranda admits that mantras purify the etheric and the astral body, and they purify the nadis. So the mental one uses mental activity and inside in, included in the mental activity the use of bija mantras, while the nirmanu is done by cleansing exercises called here in Sanskrit in this shloka, dhauti. Dhauti, those of you who know yoga, who have, who have read or listened to my lectures on Garanda Samhita, you know because dhauti was, was what was taught in the chapter number one of Garanda Samhita. Garanda Samhita starts in its chapter number one with the practice of the Shatkarma Kriya, the six major Kriyas with all their subdivisions, out of which one is called Dhauti. He doesn't say Shatkarma, although later he uses that word. He just takes the first one, which is the biggest category, which is the Dhauti, uh, Vamana Dhauti, Mulashodana Dhauti, and so on, all the rest of them. And thus, he says, there is a way of purifying your nadis without using mental concentration, mantras. Then you have to do Kriya Yoga. You have to do Dhautis and the Shatkarma system. And there, when you do, I don't know, uh, Shankaprakshalana, you know, you don't need to focus your mind so much. You get purified even if you don't use mantras or if your power of concentration is relatively slow. So you can do it the hard way with the body. It's an indirect one because if you clean the physical body, some etheric impurities will be discharged in the physical body. And by cleaning it again, you clean more the etheric body and all the rest. But uh, therefore, th this is very, very clear. So you can do it with mind or with Dawoodis. And in 37, of course, he says, the cleansing exercises or Dawuti have been already described as the six actions of the Shat Karma system in chapter number one. He doesn't say in chapter number one. I say that. Listen now, so that he says, I'm not going. You want to purify by that? Get back to the beginning and make sure you have purified yourself well enough. You've done detox and whatever, so that when you do pranayama, you're not going to burst a blood vessel in your brain or God knows what and get damage from pranayama instead of great benefits. So he says that one is part of the cleaning. I explained already. Listen now, O Chanda, to the Samanu method of cleansing the nadis like how to do cleansing for pranayama as preparation and with a mind with mantras and all that <clears throat> and he says 38 the yogin must sit in padmasana the lotus pose and first perform the adoration of the primordial guru adi guru that's shiva so first it starts with a consecration and an invocation like shiva help me to purify myself and an adoration, the primordial guru, Adi Guru, as taught by his own perceptor. Like usually being in a school, your teachers show you how to do consecration, how to do uh, uh, a nice samyama. So everybody who is in yoga, if I tell them you start this exercise with two minutes or three minutes of asking for grace, consecrating, you know, because you are going to do some strong practice. Everybody understands that. And Gyaranda, of course, takes it for granted that you understand what this means. So actually, he mentions you start with the invocation of Shiva. And 
there is an alternative. There are two translations of Geranda Samhita where the Sanskritologists interpreting the word Nyasa in this specific way, they say we, the yogin starts, as he says here, the yogin must sit in Padmasana and first invite the deities to the various parts of the body by Nyasa as advised by the guru. So they interpret the words because Sanskrit is a very ambivalent language. This, this particular shloka has a sort of a double entendre. And the funny thing is that this double entendre is possible. For those of you who are not very shamanically inclined, this sounds spooky and weird, but actually it's a tradition in some, tan it's a tradition in some tantric lineages of India and Tibet, in some Vedic rituals, that the person who does some ritual or something first connects to deities and says, Varuna in my left shoulder, Brahma in my right shoulder, Shiva in my head, and Vishnu in my belly button, and this and that, which is exactly the very meaning of Nyasa, which we teach in the Tantra courses, in the Tantra workshop. By Nyasa, a person with the help of imagination, visualization, and mantras, and the touch of the hand, says, simply says, now I'm connected to the universe. You can make Nyasa to somebody, like to a Shakti, to a woman's body in Tantra and connect her with everything for a while, for a time. It's a magic purpose and it works for, a, for one instance, for one practice. Or you can do it on yourself. You can perform Nyasa on yourself, thus connecting yourself with the universe. And in the Tantra workshops, we teach at least one Nyasa. In the ATI, we teach more of them. Various Nyasas, how to uh, empower your body or the other body or mutually and so on. So this Nyasa exists in the Tantric tradition and although Geranda doesn't teach a sexual Tantric tradition, he still teaches a Tantric tradition because there are chakras, nadis, shakti, kundalini and so on. So it is a form of right hand Tantra which he describes here and that's why this interpretation is valid. It cannot be discarded. So he says before you go, you worship Shiva, invoke for help as your guru taught you. Or he says you place the deities on your body like you connect by Nyasa as advised by your guru. So in some schools, people did a sort of a Nyasa practicing for a strong practice. Those of you who remember in our uh, Art of Dying, when we teach you Pova, the main Tibetan practice for the Art of Dying, we are showing you that in the beginning of Pova, the Tibetan gurus advise that you take a contact with Vajrayogini, with a Tibetan deity, so that it protects your energy channels. That's exactly a sort of a nyasa. It's a sort of a identification. So you get an increased level of protection. Because if you say, my head belongs to Shiva, then you won't have an accident in your head unless Shiva wants you to have an accident in your head because your head belongs to Shiva for the next one hour. You gave it to Shiva and Shiva takes care of its own, takes care of what he has. And that's why here there is a very specific practice and that's why this one is about how you start the purification. It says you sit in a meditation position facing east and all that and either you make an invocation to Shiva for protection and blessing, or you do a Nyasa as taught 
in your lineage and in your tradition. Then he should begin the purification of the nadis for a faultless success in pranayama. So he says, he uses here for this faultless success, in Sanskrit he actually uses the word vishuddha, like vishuddha chakra, and it means extremely pure. For a very pure success, like you being very pure, you can thus succeed, for you are going to do a very pure pranayama. And now he outlines the method. It's a little bit tedious, but since you are not doing these things according to a satsang, you are learning them in the Agama classes directly from teachers, and that's why here it's more worth, uh, that, worth it that you see the spirit, what are they talking about, how they are doing it, and so on. Meditating 39, Shloka 39, meditating upon the Vayu Bija as shining and of smoky color. Vayu Bija is a mantra, is the mantra of Anahata Chakra, openly given in the yoga tradition, so I'm not going to make a secret out of it. It's a mantra which sounds like Yam, 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 Yam. So he means meditating on the mantra Yam as shining and of smoky color, which means you visualize it also which is a bit of a complex thing. So those who have done more than six, seven, eight levels of yoga, you know how these things are done. Those of you who are total beginners, you don't understand. But remember, it's possible. So it's a visualization and all that. And it's a mantra, so it's an auditory thing at the same time. So meditating upon the Vayu Bija, earth shining and of smoky color, let him inhale. He uses the classical pranayama Indian word of Puraka, Puraka is the Sanskrit word for inhalation. So let him inhale by the lunar channel. He doesn't say the left nostril. He says by the lunar channel, which is very good because he constantly calls your attention. Pranayama is not only about your lungs and nostrils. It's about channels. It's about prana. Energy goes in your system. When Where does it go? How do you deal with it? That's what 99 books out of 100, which are supposed to be consecrated to pranayama, they don't say it. Modern books on pranayama are a sad catastrophe because they talk only about the anatomy of the lungs. And Geranda never talked for a line about the anatomy of the lungs, but he keeps telling you about how to purify the nadis, how to inhale by the lunar channel and all that. And he says, inhale by the lunar channel while repeating the bija 16 times. Remember, the bija was yam. So it's like you inhale by the left nostril, and then you go, while you inhale in your head, you go yam, 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 and you count it somewhere, somehow, so that it is 16 times, which is a pretty big ratio. He starts very abruptly. 16 is considered in many schools of yoga, like the highest practice you can get to. But there are many other things because some other schools, they don't measure it by repeating a mantra, a bija mantra. They measure it by the heartbeat of the practitioner or by other methods like a metronome. Many of our teachers here in the school, they have a beat of a metronome and they uh, guide you by that. So there are various ways to measure this. He just simply says here measuring it by saying a bija mantra quickly or slowly. That also depends. He doesn't mention, it depends on you, going 16 times as inhaling. 40, 
then let him hold the air in the lungs, and he uses the classical word kumbhaka, for 64 repetitions of the mantra. He uses a word in Sanskrit which is called matra, and which is a word used in linguistic, like the rhythm of a poem, the rhythm of the language, the length of the phonemes. And the same word matra is sometimes used in music, like the beat of the music. So it's exactly like a beat of a metronome. There is an inner rhythm. And he says, now he doesn't say, you know what the rhythm is for him here in this chapter, in this shlokas. The rhythm is the saying of a mantra. That's his inner clock. And he says, by the same beat, by the same thing, let, let him hold the air in the lungs for 64 repetitions of the mantra. That's pretty long. You say, yum, 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 yum. It's almost a second. 64 means 64 seconds, and you spend 16 on inhale, 64 on retention, and then I anticipate you'll have to use 32 for exhale. This means you can breathe once every two minutes, which is very long and very difficult. This He's already talking about an expert, like this is the end of the tunnel. This is the foot of the rainbow. So don't get scared, because here in the school we teach you how to start with much, much smaller rhythms, such as 4, 4, 16, 8. There is a ratio of 1 to 4 to 2. The inhale is one unit, the hold is four times that, and the exhale is two times that. And that's a very, very famous and widely used rhythm in yoga. So he follows the same here. So let him hold the air in the lungs, Kumbhaka, for 64 repetitions of the mantra, which he calls matra, like rhythm, beat. And afterwards, exhale for 32 units, same units, via the solar nadi, which means by the right nostril. So there was a breathing where you inhaled, held, and exhaled by using the mantra of the air element, which incidentally is the mantra yam. Yum, yum, yum. These mantras, these mantras of the chakras are uh, very popular in yoga and they are written everywhere. And because of this, they are not considered by most teachers as being secret. They are public. And if the people know how to use them, let it be so. And then in 41, he goes on something very interesting. He says, meditate on the root of the navel. What's the root of the navel? Like deep inside the navel. Meditate on the root of the navel to awaken the light of the fire element. No, the third chakra is not in the hollow of the stomach. It's at the root of the navel. If you read, it's like it's not in five places in yoga. In 20, 100 places you find oblique references. Somebody should make a collection of all these and publish it for the new age confused people who continue claiming that the third chakra, Manipura chakra, would be somewhere in the solar plexus, in the whole of the... It's not. It's clearly and clearly and clearly in the whole of yoga, it's related to the navel. So he says here, you see, he doesn't mention the chakras. Gyaranda, in the 18th century, in the end of the 18th century, does not mention the chakras. Ramakrishna, when he spoke about the chakras, he spoke about the seven valleys, like he was traveling in seven valleys. Why? Because the chakras were very secret. Ramakrishna didn't want to describe and so on the actual yogic secret. Even Ramakrishna, who was so open-minded, 
and so compassionate and loving, he saw the measure. He said, not everything is for everybody. Today, the chakras have been prostituted and diluted at the level of a mass knowledge. And precisely because of that, the planetary karma and the wall of silence has made that a lot of wrong information about the chakras is mixed with the right one. And that's why when you try to do it from a school, from a book, I'm sorry, you are getting it wrong usually. The, according to the New Age people, the Manipura chakra is yellow because that would be the third color of the rainbow. That's a wrong way of evaluating the colors of the chakras. And yellow does not resonate on Manipura exactly as green does not resonate with Anahata. So um, here uh, it's very clear. Meditate on the root of the navel to awaken the light of the fire element. He mentions the fire element as light, which is very true because Manipura chakra is the chakra of vision. And obviously he makes an analogy here, which is a visual analogy. So on for this one, for the first one, he didn't say meditate on the heart chakra to awaken. He said, use this bija of the air element and do pranayama and repeat it 16 times and all that. That's it. For the second stage, he, he has to go a bit more precise. And he says, meditate on the root of the navel to awaken the light of the fire. Like do a short concentration of mani, on Manipura until you feel some, some, some glowing of your fire. And then inhale through the Surya Nadi, through the solar Nadi, the right side, while repeating 16 times the fire Bija Mantra. So you did it through the left nostril with air, and now you started the other way around through the right nostril, the complementary one. Now you are doing it, but this time you are doing it with another mantra. So for the yin part, you used air mantra. For the yang part, you used fire mantra because it's more uh, similar to yang. It, it suggests fire fits better with yang in this way. Hold the air for 42, shloka 42. Hold the air for 64 repetitions of the mantra, again, very long, and then expel it via the lunar nadi during 32 matras. Again, the same units of repeating mantras. If you repeat it quickly, ram, 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 you might be able to live with 16, 64, 32. But if you take it really slowly, then it's a very hard to reach rhythm. It's a very advanced rhythm already. 43. Then, so now there have been two breathings. One through the left with air. One through the right with fire. Then there comes a third one. So his Nadi Shudi, his purification of the Nadis for Geranda, consists in cycles of three breaths. One lunar with air. One solar with fire. And the third one. Then... Focus the gaze on the tip of the nose. This is called Nasagra Drishti. So it is this focusing on the nose. Visualizing there a luminous orb of the moon, like a round light, like in Shambhavi Mudra, like some, something shining and luminous, like the moon. And inhale through the Ida Nadi. So the third one is again lunar, while repeating the Bija Hum for 16 times. For the symmetry of the text, nobody in all the schools and all the teachers that I asked understands why did he put the bija tham 
here. It is so unusual and it is so not encountered in any other lineage or tradition of yoga that some people even suspect that it's a bollocks mantra or that it is a mis uh, copy, that it is a, a writing error or it's put on purpose like this so you don't know what he meant because the bijar thumb is not really used much in the yogic traditions of India or Tibet and nobody has a clear concept about what this bija is supposed to give in terms of its efficiency and all of that. But of course I have to respect the original text and in the original text although there is a question mark there you're going to see there are others as well. He simply says for the third one you do it with concentrating on the tip of your nose and inhale through the left nostril and at the same time you use 16 times another bija mantra which is thumb. 44. Hold the breath for 64 repetitions of the bija mantra vam. Now he comes into the fold again. He used the mantra yam, he used the mantra ram and now he uses the mantra vam which is the bija mantra of Svadhisthana chakra and in the end he's going to use the bija mantra lam. So he has yam, ram, vam, lam. That's logical. It makes sense. Where did thumb appear from and what it is related to? It beats me and a lot of other people. And that's why there is some research going in this extent, in this direction. Um, so he says, hold the breath for 64. So now you use this one mantra when you inhale, another mantra while you hold your breath, and as you are going to see, a third mantra while you are exhaling. So this is a pranayama, not with the same mantra during the three, but with three mantras during the three stages of it. Hold the breath for 64 repetitions of the Bija Mantra Vam while visualizing. He uses a word which we in modern American will say visualizing, but it could very easily mean imagining, mentalizing, contemplating, because not everybody is a visual person. So how do non-visual persons visualize something? In a more fuzzy way, they use a different, like they use a kinesthetic sense. Because here it says visualizing that the nectar, amrita, soma, is flowing and purifying the nadis. It's like you are getting showered with amrita or with soma. Uh, a kinesthetic person would rather close their eyes and breathe and then kind of feel it, feel it through the body like a breeze because the power of visualization of that person is not very good. So that's why I'm saying take it with a pinch of salt and even this word visualizing, it's a word, I mean he uses usually dhyanam in Sanskrit which means meditate, visualize, imagine, mentalize, project, contemplate. It's a, it has a multitude of meanings by which he says uh, visualize that the nectar is flowing and purifying the nadis. Uh, many authors say that you have to visualize from this lunar light in front of the nose because this lunar light is actually placed at the same level as Soma Chakra inside the head. So actually when you focus here, that's why he means focus here because you are focusing at the level of Soma Chakra and that's why he says when you focus here, it will make the Soma, visualize Soma from here or from Soma Chakra visualize the amrita showering in your head and in your body and kind of purifying everything and then 
exhale for 32 units while repeating the bija lam. So this is a pranayama, the third pranayama in his series is a pranayama with three mantras, tam when you inhale, vam when you hold your breath, and lam when you exhale. It's complicated. We don't do the Buddha Shuddhi exactly by his method. When we do Nadi Shodana and other pranayamas in Agama, we do it with Nadi Shodana, with Sukha Purvak, with Anuloma Viloma. We have a gradual way of going from easy Nadi Shodana to more advanced Nadi Shodana, slowly, slowly, and experience shows that this is enough so that we can take people to Kundalini levels, to Pranayama, to other things. And as a, as a general rule, and as a total rule, we are not getting any accidents in the Agama system of practice, such as people getting to Pranayama or Kundalini Mudras too quickly and damaging themselves into the process in any way. So this is a peculiar method which Geranda is teaching. It's very beautiful because you see how much attention he pays to the details. You do a one Pranayama on Yin, on, on the lunar part with air, one pranayama on the solar part with fire, uh, one more pranayama on the yin element with three mantras in a row, and then he concludes in the shloka 45 by saying this is the method for purifying the nadis. Afterwards, one shall sit in a steady posture, he doesn't say all the steady postures are good, and perform pranayama. Finally, it took him 45 shlokas to get to the proper subject of pranayama because he used 45 shlokas to just prepare, prepare, prepare. It's obvious that he has a great respect towards pranayama and he wouldn't take it lightly. And that's why pranayama has to remain for you as one of the big things because we do many asanas in the class, but pranayama is the next step is even bigger. And in 46, he starts, and I'm going to be able to cover tonight one of his practices of pranayama, in which uh, actually it's a very complex one, and in which you are going to see a lot of patterns and hear a lot of uh, formidable statements as well. He says in 46, there are eight types of pranayama. He doesn't use the word pranayama in this shloka. He uses the word kumbhaka. It's an abuse of Sanskrit language because kumbhaka means retention of the breath. It just means the full retention or the full and void retention of the breath. But it's in slang, in the yoga slang, it's used like a word to speak about pranayama. Pranayama is kumbhaka. A kumbhaka is a pranayama. Although technically, kumbhaka is just one of the four stages of a pranayama exercise. But uh, it's the main stage. It's the active stage of pranayama, and that's why in uh, the jargon of the yogis, sometimes it's, it's used alternatively as a synonym to pranayama. So he says there are eight types of kumbhaka or of pranayama in his system, and he calls them sahita kumbhaka, sahita pranayama, surya veda pranayama, ujjayi pranayama, shitali pranayama, bastrika pranayama, brahmari pranayama, murcha pranayama, and Kevali Pranayama. This is the system of, of Gyaranda. Again, it's the problem with the names. For example, in Agama, instead of teaching directly Brahmari and Murcha, which are very tiny and marginal forms of Pranayama, important, beautiful, 
We are teaching uh, Samavriti Pranayama. We are teaching Anuloma Viloma. We are teaching uh, Sitkarin Pranayama. So they are alternatives. But in general, you are going to hear many yoga teachers and many lineages which say there are eight basic forms of pranayama. That's what we teach in Agama. When we teach you the complete yogic breath, the Maha Yoga Pranayama, we teach you there are about eight forms of pranayama, which is, I'm not going to insist here because you hear that in the courses of Agama, it's very significant because there are 84 classical asanas, 32 in Geranda Samhita, 108 asanas taught by some teachers, and even hundreds of asanas taught by some <coughs> body-obsessed gymnastics-obsessed yoga teachers. So there are many asanas, but the pranayamas are not so many. Why? Because in pranayama, you inhale, you hold your breath, you exhale, and how many variations can you do on that theme? Not so many. So physically, externally, you cannot complicate pranayama too much, and you cannot strain yourself to create all sorts of exotic types. I've seen a couple of teachers who are quoting 50 plus types of pranayama. And they do it like, ha, see how knowledgeable I am. Nobody speaks about 50 times of pranayama. Most of them are bollocks because they are still the eight basic ones with endless little variations. Like you are just moving a finger like this in one of them. And now it's a different pranayama, you know, because you keep your finger pointed up like this. There are many hilarious, superficial things like that. In pranayama, <coughs> the thing which makes the difference is not the difference like in between halasana and garudasana. It's not a big physical difference. The difference is here in the concentration of the mind. So pranayama is more subtle and the huge differences in the applications and effects of pranayama are due to the fact that pranayama is more internal and therefore more related to the mind. So he simply gave us a list of eight pranayamas. Those of you who did the first 13 levels of practice in Agama, you can recognize Surya Vedana, Ujjayi, Shitali, Bastrika, and so on. So it's it's a list which is pretty much the same with different yogis giving different alternatives. Remember that even the ten yamas and niyamas from Patanjali, and you'll say nobody can change Patanjali, it's not true. In different parts of India, two or three of those yamas or niyamas are replaced with something else. So seven of them are, six or seven of them are common, but two or, or three or four of them some yoga lineages have said, our gurus taught us that the ten yamas and yamas are these. And their list is slightly different. And nobody dies because of that. It's just alternative lineages with small differences. So that's why the same is valid here with the pranayama. So here now what he has to say about the first of them, which he calls sahita to kumbhaka. As you are going to see, sahita comes from sahaja. And you would expand like natural kumbhak, the natural pranayama, and you would expect that this is the complete yogic breath. But no, it is still an alternative pranayama. It's a form of nadishodana pranayama. The yogis have a lot of respect, especially in the beginning of the practice, for these alternative forms of pranayama. 
because you have to balance ha and ta. If it's ha ta yoga, this ha and ta is of the greatest importance. It's a very meaning of the name hatha yoga. Sahita Kumbhaka says Geranda is said to be, the shloka 47, is said to be of two kinds, sa garbha and nir garbha. By now you got the point. Sa means with something and nir means without something. So again, he divides this one in two subtypes. And he clarifies very easily. He loves classifications, this Geranda. And this makes him uh, admirable for the people who like a bit of order and clarity. Not that every yogi does it in this way. Sagarbha is accompanied by repetition of bija mantras. So you do pranayama with bija mantras. While nirgarbha is without such repetition. So he basically says when you do pranayama, especially this one, you can do it with mantras or without. You're going to say, but didn't you say that before? Yes, but before it was not called Sahita Pranayama. Before it was called Nadi Shuddhi, purification of the Nadis. So the purification of the Nadis resembles very much with the first Pranayama, which he quotes, and yet he considers them two different things. It's one thing when you do it that way for preparing the Nadis, and it's another thing when you do it like this, where you are going to see that he pushes the envelope quite a bit. He says, first I will explain Sa Garba Pranayama, like with mantras, and then without, it's dead easy, because he says you do it without saying the mantras. So first I will explain Sa Garba Pranayama. Sitting in a comfortable posture, he uses the name Sukhasana, but he doesn't mean literally Sukhasana, which you learn here in Agama. He could mean, he simply uses Sukhasana as a generic name, because Sukha means pleasant, or comfortable. So he says, sitting in a comfortable pose, if, if the Padmasana is comfortable for you, then it could be used as Sukhasana. So sitting in a comfortable posture and facing east or north, again it comes up, so he's not joking about it, he really thinks it matters. Meditate on Brahma, the creator of the Hindu triad. Meditate on Brahma, associated with Rajas Guna, red in color, and associated with the letter A. Uh, I'm anticipating. He's going to meditate on Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. He's going to meditate on one of them being red, one of them being black, and one of them being white. He's going to meditate on one of them being associated with Rajas, Sattva, and Tamas, the, called the typical colors of the Gunas. And he is uh, associating each phase of the pranayama with the three letters of the mantra Aum. A, U, and M. So it's a triadic thing. Geranda is also a triadic philosopher like the Kashmirians. He loves the divisions by three, by three, and uh, he thinks that's a good opportunity. As you inhale, retain, and exhale, you have A, U, M. You have Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva. I have to say that this association with three, it's scholarly satisfactory and good. The exact correspondences that Brahma is red and this and that is not the same in all the yogic traditions. For example, I encountered yoga traditions where Brahma is white, not red. Vishnu is white. I'm sorry, Vishnu is red and Shiva is dark or black. Um, I have associated 
I know traditions where they are related with the gunas and with the colors in a different way. And, you know, he says, uh, for example, I anticipate two shlokas further. He says Vishnu is black in color and associated with sattva guna. This definitely is a rare and unusual association because in India sattva guna is associated with white out of the three colors and tamas is associated with black out of the three colors. So this correspondence is not even standard. So if you really are scrupulous and perfectionistic, you would say, I think Geranda here made a mistake. Yes, perhaps. This does not decrease the value of Geranda. It just shows that Geranda is also a human being. And human beings are never perfect. They are fallible. Even the great Geranda, who is a monument, he, a monument but for him it doesn't matter. He says, I want to associate three phases of the breath, of the breathing process. I want to associate them with the three letters of Aum, with the three Gunas, and with the three gods of Hinduism. And he just makes this association in his own way. And another guru and another lineage can say, nonsense, it's not like this. There are many people in India who hear something from a guru, and then when they want to put them down to show, I'm better, come and follow me, they say, nonsense, how can your teacher teach such a thing, you know? It's not like this. This is associated with blue, and this is associated with red. Doesn't really make a huge difference, ultimately. Eventually, it does not disqualify Geranda. That's his system. That's the conclusion to which he reached. This is how he practiced. This is what he got from his guru. And guess what? It worked because it's a symbolic association in the mind and it just gives structure to your pranayama. It doesn't really, really, really matter if it is mathematically exact. I, being more of a Western engineer educated person with an inclination towards exact sciences like physics and so on, and being a Virgo astrologically, and being a little bit more perfectionistic probably than Geranda, of course that when I teach, I have tried to make all these correspondences according to the main trend traditions of India. And here Geranda is definitely off the beaten track. He's not main trend. But remember, this does not disqualify his practice or his teaching, because ultimately he's talking about some symbolic associations that's not the essence of what he's trying to say. So you can do it his way and you will not have a heart attack during pranayama and die because you practiced a wrong pranayama uh, because Geranda may have been off his rook when he said that. So the important thing is how he thinks. He thinks I associate the inhale with the first letter of Aum, with Brahma, <coughs> with this color and this and that. And then he says in 49, let the wise practitioner inhale by the Ida Nadi, again left, repeating mentally A. So now you don't repeat a mantra, you repeat just one letter of the mantra Aum, A, 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 16 times. Again, he starts with a very high time. A beginner would usually start with four times in this. Immediately before starting the retention of the breath, the next stage, Kumbhaka, let him perform Mudiyannaka. I have looked 
through the Sanskrit text because I couldn't believe this because it's obvious and later he does the same thing uh, not the same thing later he corrects it he definitely wants to say that you should do Jalandharabandha but mysteriously it's written Udhyanaka uh, definitely you cannot do Udhyana after you finished inhaling because Udhyana Bandha is based on the void retention you have to be totally empty of air so to try to do Udhyana Bandha when you are reaching the end of the inhalation it's a joke you know it's you can't pretend that you do it can't really do it so that's why I'm sure that here there is a typo a scribe error or just a joke because the teachers in yoga the people who are the adepts of yoga they know that there are three bandhas which are the famous three bandha of the bandha triamprakriya they can even be combined with each other and these three bandhas have a special relationship with each other they are a triad and they are mula bandha udhyana bandha jalandhara bandha these three always come together so when you tell to me udhyana I think about Mula and Jalandhara automatically because those are the three sisters. And thus, it may be a sort of a trick like I'm saying Udhyanaka, but everybody who does yoga knows it's Jalandhara, can't be Udhyana. So it's like, you know, somebody who is a total outsider will try to do it and make a fool of themselves because you can't really do it. So that's why here is an example either of a purposeful mistake or a mistake which appeared like this text was copied by a scribe in the 19th century and the scribe smoked too much ganja and when he saw Jalandhara there he was his mind went into Mula and Udhyana because those are the sisters and his hand wrote Udhyana instead of Jalandhara it's possible either it's an intentional mistake or not definitely here he doesn't mean Udhyana by 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 power of practice and logics it's clearly so so he says you inhale with ah, 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 16 times. Again, it's a 16 time inhalation, which if you don't do it quickly, it can last very long. And immediately before the retention, so as soon as you are about to start the retention, you go into Jalandhara Bandha, which here in Agama we teach very clearly as a manner of performance. 50. Then let him hold the breath for 64 units. Again, it's a huge retention of the breath. That's why you better start with a much lower rhythm. Repeating mentally, U, A, U, M. So now you take the second vowel. And meditating on Hari, which is a name for Vishnu. So meditating on Hari, Vishnu, black in color and associated with Sattva Guna. This is a bummer philosophically because Sattva is not black. So I don't know how did Geranda get it or how did the scribe mess it up. It will not matter if you do it like this because the important thing is to give a structure, a triadic structure like it's part one, part two, part three. Alpha, beta, gamma. No beginning, middle and end. Three phases of a process. That's what matters. But if you are a little bit perfectionistic and you want to be accurate, then you know that uh, he botched it or somebody after him, some scribe, some copyist, botched it a little bit with this one so anyway it doesn't matter so hold the breath and finally 51 then let him exhale for 32 units so it's one to four to two via the right nostril focusing on the letter m, m and meditating on shiva white in color 
and associated with tamas guna. 52. Then again, inhaling through pingala, so the other way around, because it always goes left, and then you have to do it compulsorily right as well. So then again, inhaling through pingala, retain the air by kumbhaka and exhale by ida nadi, using the same method and bijas, the same mantras as prescribed before. He did not prescribe mantras. He prescribed letters of the Sanskrit alphabet used as very, very short and simple mantras. A, U, M. <coughs> 53, with which he concludes the description. Alternating the nostrils, so going like this, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. Let him practice this again and again. So how many hours can you do that per day? From the end of the inhale till the end of the retention. So that means as long as you hold the breath in. Close the two nostrils by the thumb on one side and the ring and little finger on the other side without using the index and the middle finger. Some yogis place them on the forehead to relax and some yogis curl them in the palm so they will not participate to the process. I prefer this because it focuses the energy on the root of Ida and Pingala here. It brings more awareness here. And I think this one looks better, works better than this one with the curled fingers, which is also a bit tensed and uncomfortable. But ultimately, different teachers teach different hand mudras as to do this. So he says for better safety, and not fainting or losing contact with the body, squeeze the nostrils. So when you hold your breath, you really hold your breath, like the nose is plugged mechanically. And with this, he ended it. And then he says what you would have expected him to say, the nirgarbha pranayama, so the one without mantras, is performed without repetition of the bija mantras. It's the same. But you don't count by saying ah, 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 ooh, 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 ooh. The, to measure a unit of time, then he says, rotate the left hand placed on the left knee. So basically, the yogis do pranayama, and then instead of saying mantras, they go like one, two, three, four, five. They simply make circles with the right hand on their knee, like this. They make circles, and that's the unit, which is approximately a second from somewhere between half of a second and one second <coughs> and that's a simple way of measuring puraka kumbhaka and rechaka which means inhale retention and exhale may last from one to a hundred such units like you decide how much how many units <coughs> you can hold it but of course the rhythm stays the same and he even now clarifies it and he says in shloka 55 he says the highest practice is of 20 matras which means 20 80 40 20 units inhaling 80 units holding the breath which is enormous and 40 units exhaling all in all 100 and 40 units for one pranayama you have to be really 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 advanced and good to do this kind of pranayama 
The middling one is of 16 units, which means 16, 64, 32. And the lowest of 12, the lowest is of 12 matras, which means 12, 48, 24. <coughs> Thus pranayama, he concludes, has three degrees. I have to tell you that in the Agama theory, in the Agama courses, we follow a more main trend because these things are very hard. In the main trend of yoga in India, actually the three units are 4, 18, I'm sorry, 4, 8, and 16. The double of the dust. So the beginner matra is 4, 4, 16, 8. Pretty much everybody can do a breathing 4, 16, 8. Then you move to 5, 20, 10, 6, 24, 12. And you keep the, the, the ratio until you reach to the middle part, which is 8. 8, 32, 16 is already a good practice. Whoever can do pranayama with 8, 32, 16 has reached an average level in pranayama. And then the advanced level in the classical yoga schools from India, not in Garanda school, but in the classical yoga schools of India, the, class, the higher level is the one with 16, 16, 64, 32. And there are very few people in the school who can do 16, 64, 32, because that involves that you have to do every day minimum one hour of pranayama, otherwise you, of this pranayama, Otherwise, you will not manage to get to that rhythm. But lo, that Garanda is a very high-stakes teacher. He has canceled the beginning one. He has made the low one 12, which is more than the average one today in India. He's keeping the big one as middling. And then he has added a further stage of 20. 20, 80, 40, which is over the top. Why did he do that? Because in his system, he associates some landmarks some signs and he wants to give you that signs <clears throat> and he says in shloka 56 which is toward one of the last which we read here tonight he says the lowest degree the lowest degree for him is 12 so the lowest degree gives warmth and perspiration he simply said you start sweating when you can do it at this level your body produces internal warmth, which is a forerunner of the Kundalini rising. It's a sign of Kundalini starting coming up. And because of this, you start sweating. And that's also a sign of purification of the nadis and purification of the body. <coughs> so it's, you are well on the way when you do that. So the lowest degree gives warmth and perspiration. The middling one produces shivers along the spine. The goosebumps, the Shakti Chalana. So he basically says when you do 16, your Kundalini is rising already. You are just like jolted with electricity and you are going into a very intense energy level along the spine. And the highest practice, that's the 20 level. I haven't known anybody who did 20 systematically. And the highest practice makes one leave the ground, which means levitation. He says, if you do 20, you will float in mid-air. These are the signs of success, respectively. And when he uses the word success, he uses the Sanskrit word siddhi, which means perfection, accomplishment. And it's a double entendre word because in yoga it is used to mean paranormal accomplishment. 
So basically, Geranda says, if you will do alternative pranayama with 20, you will levitate. He says, verify me on this. Do pranayama with 20 and see if it takes you to levitation. That's the statement which Geranda gives from the tradition. <clears throat> and he concludes in 57, he doesn't finish the chapter. The chapter has 96 shlokas, so we are a little bit over half, and I hope that next time I will conclude it or get very close to the end of this one. But uh, in 57, in 58, he will start the second type of pranayama, Surya Beda. And therefore, in 57, he concludes, and he's, but he, now he speaks generally about pranayama, and in particular about Sahita pranayama, which in Agama is called Nadishodana, Sukapurvak and finally Anuloma Viloma in its three forms of intensity. You learn that in various levels of Agama practice. <coughs> Says Geranda in 57. By pranayama, so because he said, he gave the signs, level one you sweat and have heat, level two you have constant Kundalini rising, level three you lift off the ground. By pranayama he says, one reaches the power of kechari, which means levitation, and others. Kechari move, moves flying through the air, moving through the air. But for example, in Kashmiri Shaivism and other lineages of India, kechari is interpreted more like a spiritual power that you can project your spirit, like in Pova, that you can project your spirit, and it's a city of a much, much more subtle degree. While for some Hatha yogis, Kechari means, no, 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 no. Your physical body can move like this. You can fly in the air and move wherever you want. It is my understanding that Geranda uses it here in the lower meaning, not in the Kashmirian meaning. He doesn't have too much of the higher metaphysical approaches. He seems to be a very down-to-earth yogi, and that's why he seems to use the language of this Hatha yogis, and that's why when he says pranayama reaches the power of kechari, he says pranayama makes one levitate. Yeah. If anybody in this world tells you that they reached perfection in pranayama, make them show you how they levitate, because that's what success in pranayama is. Therefore, as long as you don't levitate, none of you can say that you have reached success in pranayama. You are still beginners. Geranda says when you levitate, then you are a master in pranayama. So by pranayama, one reaches the power of kechari. By pranayama, diseases are cured. By pranayama, the shakti, kundalini, is awakened. By pranayama, the mind is controlled and transcended. By pranayama, the mind reaches bliss, and the practitioner is happy. So much he praises pranayama. His final verse here, is he says, look how great pranayama is. That's what pranayama does. So he says, practice pranayama. Go for pranayama. We conclude today at the shloka 57, which was this one which I just read. In 58, he's starting with Surya Vedana, and there is another practice which I will share with you next time. Uh, the other ones are shorter, relatively. Only Surya Vedana is still a bit long. You'll see why. And um, 
uh, in this way we are going to go through the eight types to the other seven types of pranayama more quickly more briefly uh, which Garanda is teaching in his system with this we have concluded uh, concluded our travel through the spirit of Garanda Samhita I like it it's scientific it's technical it may be a bit tedious and monotonous like Garanda is not a Cirque du Soleil type of man he doesn't make anything flashy or something although now and then he comes with these big splashes like he speaks so squarely about it and he says when you get to 20 you are going to lift off the ground basically when you hear such a square person saying this <coughs> it gives you a big jolt you know because this guy seems to be so practical so direct so straightforward and then from time to time, bang, he comes up with some big one and he says, you do pranayama, pranayama makes you like the gods. That's a big statement, you know. Most people think that pranayama is hyperventilation, oxygenation of tissues, this and that. It's way more for Geranda. So even when he is so tame and he speaks in such a square and down-to-earth way and going through Geranda Samhita, I know I am aware that for many of you, sometimes when I hold very big, spectacular, intense speeches here in the satsang, you are uh, carried on and you are entertained by it. Geranda Samhita is not really a very entertaining text, and yet I am very satisfied with it, because here and there, this man Geranda shows you the big things of yoga, shows you that there is something which is really powerful in yoga. The question is, who will have the self-discipline, the perseverance, to verify Geranda? No, because Geranda is just putting it on the table and says, that's what I learned from my teachers. That's what I know the truth to be. Enough with that. Thank you for joining tonight and namaste to all of you. With this, we have finished for tonight and see you in the next satsang. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.